please be seated. Would you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds to you right now to hear from your word. I pray that you will reveal your intention in this difficult passage and this difficult book. But we know that because it's here, we're supposed to understand it and that you want to speak to us through it. And so we listen for your voice and we ask that you would speak to us. If you would call us, we're open. Lord, empower us to do your will from this word. Reveal it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we welcome you to uh, part four of our study on the book of Revelation called Famous Last Words. And uh, of course, because it's in our Bible, it is a book for everyone. I think sometimes we look at the book of Revelation and we think, well, that's too hard. That's beyond my ability to understand. Or that's for mystics in the church or people who've been to seminary. But that's not true. Revelation is for everyone and something we need to uh, spend time reading and understanding. Um, let me assure you that for the believer in Christ, this is not a scary book. For the believer in Christ, hope far outweighs the scary parts. Yes, there's persecution in there. Yes, there are battles and even dragons. But in the end, it all comes down to this. God rules, his kingdom comes, hope lives, and Jesus wins. We know the end of the book because we cheated and read the end, right? So we know that Jesus wins this whole thing. When it was written near the end of the first century, uh, Revelation was intended to be a comfort to God's people. And what was happening at that time? God's people were going through a lot of persecution for their faith, and some were being executed because of their faith. And so uh, Jesus spoke through John to his people to encourage them. Well, today we're in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. I encourage you to open your Bible to chapter 6 or grab a pew Bible if there's one ahead of you. And uh, I find it's a lot easier in something like this that you're walking through it with us or following it. Um, just, it just becomes easier. There's also an outline in your sermon notes today. So if you go to the sermon notes page and turn it over, there's a, something that will help you to understand a little more about the chapter. Uh, we've said before that the best way to understand the book of Revelation is to think of it like a musical symphony. It has a lot of parts. It has a lot of movements, often with a change in tempo or a change in volume or maybe a change in instrumentation that tells us, oh, hey, we've moved into a new section. So the first movement was the introduction that we did. The next two chapters had specific messages for the seven major churches of Asia Minor. Chapter 4 and 5 were focused on worship and worthiness in the throne room of God. And today, we begin with Jesus ready to open the scroll that he's been handed. It's going to reveal God's intentions for his people and for the earth. Now, we're still in the throne room of God. We haven't changed our venue, but uh, we are into the next part of the vision. So just as a reminder, ancient scrolls came with they were often sealed with sealing wax, and 
The person would have a signet ring and they would put their impression on the sealing wax or if, uh, if they did, it didn't have that, they would have a stamp that had an impression on it that they would put into the wax that was uniquely theirs. And uh, the only scrolls that were sealed with seven seals were wills and deeds. And so it's easy for us to think that this is the sealed will of God, not yet revealed. Um, the scroll that Jesus has in his hands is very secret and very important. It spells out the rest of time. We found last week that only Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and reveal its contents. He's the Lamb of God. He's bloodied, but he is not defeated. In fact, he has overcome sin and death, and boy, he's beaten Satan at his game. So as Jesus breaks the seal on the scroll, each seal opens up more information. It reveals a little bit more as we go along. Well, I want to begin with uh, Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read that out loud, and I'd like you to follow along if you have your Bible with you. Let's hear the Word of God. I watched as the Lamb of God opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given the power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, 
and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You'll notice as you read through this book, and, and this is no different from that, is that there are a lot of things going on at the same time. And so sometimes one thing is happening as another thing is happening as another thing is happening in layers. It's like it's all layered. Um, again, think of it like a musical. Think of, think of a symphony. You know, unless it's a solo, there are a lot of instruments being played all at the same time. And some are following their own little melody, and some are keeping the rhythm, and others are, are leading the way in a different way. The combination of the instruments together produces the music or the song. Well, in, in Revelation, a lot of things are going on at the same time. It's kind of like a complicated piece of music. You'll also notice here that Jesus only opened six of the seven seals. We have to wait until chapter 8 before we get the, the last one. But something has begun that's going to continue until that time. On your outline, you'll see that this vision part, uh, this is part of a larger vision, it's divided into three parts. And so um, there is the part about the four, four horsemen, there's the part about the martyrs of the faith, and there's a part about the response of the people to the sixth seal. Now, as usual, you know, when you look at the book of Revelation, there's a lot of argument about interpretation. However, uh, many of the scholars that I personally um, trust the most believe that the seven seals reveal the time between Jesus coming the first time and, between, and, and Jesus coming the second time. So they feel that it's, it's covering this period of time which we're in, a period that Jesus called the last days. We are in the end times. We are in the last days, according to Jesus, and have been since his coming, when it all began. Now, there are different stages of that, and we're going to see more of that as we go along. This is a time that Jesus calls the birth pains. Or sometimes, if you go to the King James, it'll be birth pangs. In Matthew 24, here's what Jesus says. For many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Messiah, and many will deceive, or be, will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of the birth pains. Well, when I think of birth pains, I think of childbirth. It's natural. Both our kids had their own idea, their own schedule for a revival or for arrival that did not match what Bonnie and I had on the calendar. Uh, one came late and arrived like a hurricane. The other came early, almost premature, and took her own sweet time appearing, making her first appearance. But 
but they both notified us of their arrival through birth pains that Bonnie experienced. And, and, and they call them birth pains for what reason? Because they're painful, right? Because they hurt. Because <laughs> they hurt. And so the same is true here. This is part of what Jesus talked about as the birth pains. This passage is very directly related to the passage uh, in, in Matthew 26. They're connected. Before Jesus returns, there will be painful times. There will be birth pains. But they will begin to appear telling us that Jesus is coming soon. So as we go into this passage, as each of the four seals are broken, or the first four seals are broken, there shows up a rider on a horse. Now, we usually call these four horsemen together the four horsemen of the apocalypse, because we really like drama. And so we give them a name like that. And um, three of these four match directly with what Jesus said here in Matthew 24 about the birth pains of his return. And here's how it starts. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, now the horseman didn't ride out of the scroll. <laughs> he, he's not being released. He's being revealed. So that... As each seal is broken, part of the vision is being given to you. You're being able to see it along with John. We're on a ride along with John, so we see what he sees. These riders are invited to do their worst on the earth, and they're being summoned out the same way a chariot driver at the arena, when they were having chariot races uh, at the Circus Maximus specifically, they were, they were summoned out of the underground part into the arena, you know, like we kind of do with football players today. You know, we introduce the team and they come running out onto the field. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. The word is come, or in Greek, it's go forth. It's your turn. And they're summoned not to put on a show, but to do their worst. The first rider on the white horse, he's a, a conqueror and an oppressor. He's an antichrist. And he's given a crown, but he's not a real king. He's a false king. He's a false savior. And he may look good on the surface, and he may be able to get people to follow him, but understand this. His plan is evil, and he represents the conquering kings of earth, each of these kings claiming uh, kingship over lands that are not even their own. Liberation is what they claim, but oppression is the plan. And I, I, I can't help but looking at the news this week and thinking about Putin sitting there on the border with Ukraine and having full intention of rescuing the country, just as he rescued Crimea. A king with false claims, claiming ownership to something that doesn't belong to him. Chapter 5, we said that God had a plan to rescue his people. And then we flip the page and we come to this. We come to chapter 6 and, and we're reading this and it's like, wait a minute, this isn't what we just read. This isn't the promise that we had, had, had been told. It's not what we've been expecting. 
God here seems to be giving permission for the evils of the earth to take place. But think about this. Sometimes when you have an illness, you have to get to the source of the illness in order to bring a cure. In counseling, for example, when you, you are trying to help somebody through a complex issue, um, sometimes you have to go to some painful places to get to the root of the problem in order to see the healing take place. And God here seems to be doing that. He seems to be exposing the evil before he deals with it. Second rider. It's on a fiery red horse. And, and it says, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. And to him was given a rather large sword. This represents war. People turning against each other in civil war. Stealing the peace from the people. Thankfully, nothing like that's happened in our country ever. <laughs> or has it? The third rider is on a black horse, and its rider is holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard of what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, that sounds odd. Financial chaos, famine, starvation. How many places have been affected by this? How many places are still being affected by this. You know, you go into some of the poor countries and you see this, this dramatically rich right beside the dramatically poor. You know, when we were traveling in Honduras and we saw great mansions on the side of the mountain and right next to them cardboard and tin shacks right up against their wall. This kind of disparity is somewhat what this is talking about. I remember as a child, you know, it was always, we were always raising money for Biafra, for children starving in Biafra. That was the, the, the thing that was always preached to us as kids. Eat your peas, because there are children starving in Biafra. You know, there was always somebody starving in some place. And, and we didn't really understand the scope of that. We didn't understand the seriousness of that until we grew up. And now you look around at some of the poorest countries in the world, and incidentally, two of our mission stations are in two of those countries in both Malawi and Mozambique. Um, we also helped to dig a well in Sierra Leone a few years ago, and it ranks among the poorest of, of countries, where there is a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor. The black horseman still rides today. And the final horseman was the pale horse. Uh, I, I can't help but reading this now that I've, I've read what the Greek language says. This is kind of a pale green horse. <laughs> it's an odd color. But maybe it's green because of the color or the suggestion of sickness. The final horseman is death. And he's followed by a companion, Hades. Now, Hades is the abode of the dead, and I'm not sure how to picture that, but... Um, we do know that death too, all over the world and now in history, death by sword and famine and plague, um, we've experienced this 
and it continues to be experienced by people. Plague? Do we know plague? More than 930,000 people have died of COVID in this country so far. Worldwide, that's 5.8 million. Do we know plague? Have we experienced it? You know, these horsemen aren't literal, right? You can't, you're not going to look out your bedroom window and see one of these guys riding by waving at you. It's just not going to happen. This is symbolic. They symbolize the evils of the world, especially the stuff that's happening between the coming of Jesus and his return. And all of these birth pains or birth pangs of his return, God is exposing evil and he's bringing it to light. And all of this will be destroyed. All of the things we've mentioned will be gone, eliminated entirely before God establishes his new heaven and his new earth. The second thing we want to look at here is the martyrs of the faith. That's the second group in this passage. These are the faithful followers of God, and we've been, well, they're waiting. They're waiting on justice. They're waiting on judgment, justice for their deaths. It says, when he opened, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And they called out with a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. You know, since Jesus first came, so many have been killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus, even for just believing in Jesus, professing Christ. And here, those who had died for their faith are, are crying out to God for justice, for judgment on the earth. And a Romans 12:19 tells us that Christians aren't allowed to take revenge. And we're told to leave room for God's wrath. Well, here they're asking for God's wrath. They're asking for God's judgment to rain down on those who caused their deaths. It brings to mind the words of Psalm 113. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 113. It's a lament. And um, it starts off, "How long, Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? This is what they're saying. We want justice. We want answers. We want people to answer for what they've done. They want to be avenged. God tells them to wait a little while. It says, Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. More are going to be martyred. These times that we're in, they test our faith. Maybe God allows this persecution to exist 
as a sifting of disciples. Who is the true disciple? Who is the false disciple? Certainly, as times go on and Christians become more scorned, there is no reason at all to have a faith that's in name only. No reason. Why would you? If having a Christian name brings you under persecution, brings you into suffering, why would you carry that name unless you're serious? Unless you really intend to follow God? Only a true follower of Jesus would endure what so many of our brothers and sisters have endured. But notice that God hasn't forgotten these people. Uh, They were given the white robe. The white robe represents uh, righteousness. It it means that God recognizes that what they've been through, they've, they've been faithful. They've been righteous followers. They've been purified through their suffering, and they have come out the other side still following Jesus, and he acknowledges that here. You know, God recognizes that we go through unjust situations in life, and he doesn't forget them. He doesn't miss out on that. When something is happening and somebody is is persecuting you in some way, God didn't miss that. He sees that, and he acknowledges that, just as he acknowledges the suffering of these martyrs for the Christian faith. And God's wrath isn't waiting long, the justice part. He's waiting for the rest who are coming, who are going to be killed for their faith to be gathered in. You know, it's a very real and sobering truth that each of us must be prepared to be martyred for our faith. Dying for faith may become part of our own testimony someday. We may be gathered with them under that altar. I remember hearing one of our church leaders from India in the Brethren in Christ Church talk about a village that rose up against him for preaching the gospel. He was preaching the gospel one day, had been invited there, and there were these groups of, who, who used to stir things up who would move from town to town, and they came in, and they got the whole town against them, and they drove them out of the town to a place where they were going to kill him. And they took a hold of him, and some got rocks to stone him to death. He said in that moment he was prepared to die. And he prayed. He even said, Lord Jesus, I commend my spirit, my soul to you. You know, he was in that moment, he was giving the Lord himself. He was ready to go like Stephen did. And he prayed that the Lord's will would be done and nothing happened. When I say nothing happened, I mean nothing happened. They let go of him. And it's like the crowd became confused and he walked out of that crowd and they never even saw him going. That brings to mind an event in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30 where Jesus did exactly the same thing where they, they surrounded him and they took him to the edge of a cliff and they were going to push him off and, and Jesus simply walked away. And they did nothing to stop him. God confused the crowd. Well, so many others of our brothers and sisters in places like India have not been so lucky. We've known members of our church 
dragged to death after being baptized and beaten to death. It's one of the reasons uh, several years ago we talked about changing the name of the church from Brethren into Christ to something a little more modern. And we received a, a, a note uh, from the representatives of the Indian church and they said, please do not change the name of the church. Some of our brothers and sisters have died in that name for Jesus. That's powerful. How many of us are prepared to die at any time, no matter what the circumstances are? How many of us would refuse to make the state into a god like they do in China right now, where they insist that faith in the state comes before faith in God? That's written right into the charter of some churches. How many of us would be able to resist burning incense to the emperor when our lives or our family's lives were threatened? Yet so many here stood that test and they've been gathered under the altar in the throne room of God. We'll see where they begin to worship very shortly in our passages. The third part here has to do with the response of the people when God opened up, or Jesus opened up the sixth seal. Their response. Let me read the first part. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled back and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And even so, is it well with your soul? Is it well? Political unrest, natural disasters, blood moons, eclipses, earthquakes, falling comets. We're, we've become watchers of signs. Every time some natural disaster hits, we, we think, oh, is this it? Is this, is this the end? Is Jesus coming now? And sadly, you know, especially during COVID, there were preachers who exploited this and stirred up fear. Is Jesus returning soon? Through history, Christians have watched for signs of Jesus coming because Jesus told us that these things would happen. And, and sometimes in the doing of that, we, we begin grasping at straws. We either want it so much or we fear it so much that we begin grasping, we begin looking for signs instead of looking at Jesus. Do you know that in the year 2000, or the year 1000, people thought that with the close of the millennium that, that Jesus was coming at the stroke of midnight. And so thousands of people gathered in St. Peter's Square uh, to hear from the Pope. And the Pope came out and he addressed them and he assured them that there was no reason to believe that the world was going to end at the stroke of midnight in the year 1000. And he told them all to go home. Not everybody did. A lot stayed. A lot, that fear just kept churning and churning. And at the stroke of midnight, some were so terrified that they died of fright standing in that square. Can you imagine? But that kind of fear 
is being stirred up today in some places. I think when it's happening, when it's really happening, I think Jesus will, will reveal that to you. I think it will be very obvious. I don't think it'll be as subtle as going out and looking at the moon one night and, oh, hey, doesn't that look a little red? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Whole books have been written on that subject. <laughs> it's like, where did that come from? We need to be careful. But we need to be mindful. Folks, we can spend our lives watching for signs and living in fear, or we can spend our lives living for Jesus. And if we're living for Jesus, we, know have, we have no fear of these signs appearing. When they come, it's like, oh, good, it's soon. So what's the response of the people of the earth when, when this seal is unleashed, when all of these signs begin appearing in the sky? It says, then the kings of the earth, the princes and the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everybody else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great, the great day of their wrath has come. And who can understand it? Who can withstand it? I noticed right off when I was reading this passage that there was something missing. Do you see it? What's missing from their response? It's repentance, isn't it? There's no repentance. You know, they have the greatest challenge here of their life, and they don't repent. They know they're going to be facing God. They're terrified because they knew they had done wrong, but they, and they were about to face judgment. They were going to face the living God. They hid because their time had come. They wanted to be crushed rather than face Jesus, but they didn't repent. There is no repentance here. What do we do when we're confronted with our own sin, with our own injustice, with our own wrongs? And with our own mortality. You know, every time I do a, a funeral, every time we lose someone, every time someone goes to be with the Lord, I think about this. I think about end-of-life things. I think we're meant to do that. And when we're faced with our own sin and when we're faced with our own mortality, there's really only one thing to do. Get right with God. <laughs> be ready. Repent. Turn away from that sin that keeps you from being free. Repentance means forgiveness. And forgiveness means that the only judgment that you're going to receive before God are the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a judgment in itself. Don't respond like the people in this prophecy. There's no need to do that. Turn fully to Jesus people under the altar, the martyrs for the faith. Did you, I don't know if you noticed that the, how they addressed Jesus. They, they called him Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. That, that has a very special meaning. It means that he ruled over them and he owned them, lock, stock, and barrel. They belonged to Jesus 100%. There's a little place in the notes this morning for your prayer response today. 
You know, the horsemen of the apocalypse are still free to create havoc on the earth until Jesus says time is up. And that means that some or all of us may at some point experience death by persecution. Are we ready to follow God no matter what? Maybe your prayer today should be something like this. Lord, strengthen my faith and let me never deny you. One day we're all going to be facing judgment before God. Do you fear him or welcome him because you are ready? Maybe your prayer response today is forgive my sin and prepare my heart. I want you to be my sovereign Lord. How's the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Maybe your prayer is different from those. You know, I can't help but read this section and be reminded of Spafford's hymn and the closing of it. The Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump will resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen? Lord Jesus, forgive our sin. Prepare our hearts to receive you at the time of your choosing. Let us welcome you as sovereign Lord. Rule over our lives, Lord. We are your servants, and we wait for you. Lord Jesus, come. Amen.